everyone. Welcome to our Strong Mind, Strong Body podcast. I'm your host, Angie Miller, and I have a great guest with me today. We are going to talk about the aftermath of the pandemic, why so many of us are feeling anxious. And I have a great guest, Amy Tran, and she is a candidate in clinical psychology, a PhD candidate in clinical psychology. So we're gonna talk about how come we're coming out of the pandemic, well, sort of, but we're all still kind of wrestling with these anxious thoughts, like what's it gonna to mean to socialize again? And do I really wanna go back to work and sit in long commutes? And what's all this mixed bag of emotion that we're going through? How come the world is opening back up, but I'm wrestling with anxious thoughts? So let me bring my guest in Amy Tran. And Amy, I just want you to introduce yourself. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. So my name is Amy Tran, and I am a doctoral candidate in clinical psychology. I am studying at the University of Windsor, which is located in Southern Ontario. And I'm excited to be here and to chat more about this really important topic. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much, Amy. Good. Thanks for reintroducing yourself in case I didn't get that title correct. So, you know, actually, um, I love the work that you do, Amy, and I love that we both love this topic of anxiety. And I do think that it's a big, heavy topic right now. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't talk about. A lot of people don't admit to these uncomfortable feelings. And in fact, they're not even sure how to identify them. They're just know that something doesn't feel quite right, that they maybe they're not sleeping as well, or maybe they feel more irritated or maybe they feel more uncertain. There's a lot of things. And so what Amy and I are going to talk about today is first, we're just going to kind of help define what is this big mixed bag of anxiety? Because we use anxiety almost like it is a um, slang term. I'm feeling anxious. But what does that really mean when we talk about people feeling anxious? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the global impact of anxiety. And then we're also going to talk about how do we deal with these feelings of anxiety? anxiety. And then last but not least, how can we, what are some coping skills that we can implement to feel better emotionally and physically? Because we all know that our emotional and our physical health go hand in hand. It's not two separate ends of the bridge. It's the two pieces coming together and meeting in the middle of the bridge. So Amy, I'm going to turn this over to you. Let's start to define what is anxiety other than a slang term that everybody says. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love that to start off. And I think it's an important thing to talk about because, you know, anxiety is a very normal human emotion. But when it gets too intense, that's when we start to see those mental and physical impacts on our health. So when we talk about anxiety in psychology, in the clinical work, we define it as excessive anxiety and worry that can span for about six months or more. And then also people find it difficult to control the worry. And the worry is associated with at least three of these six symptoms. So they could be nausea, muscle tension, difficulties concentrating, shortness of breath, uh, difficulty sitting still, or an even numbness and tingling in the feet. So it gets to be a problem when these types of symptoms start to interfere with your day-to-day -day functioning. So your work, your school, your family life, for example. 
Right. And you know, Amy and I talked about this. We talked about how we're really pulling the definition from the DSM-5, which is kind of the holy grail of diagnosis. And basically what the DSM-5 says is even though we all use the word anxiety loosely, what the DSM-5 really says is that we're experiencing these symptoms more days than not for six months, for at least six months, right? For And mm -hmm. so it's not like, oh, I'm feeling anxious today, therefore I have an anxiety disorder. Amy and I aren't here to define anxiety disorders. We're not here to clinically diagnose anybody as having an anxiety disorder. We're sort of giving a lay of the land of what is anxiety and how does it get diagnosed in it from a clinical standpoint. And meaning that it has to be pretty intrusive. Like you said, it has to have at least three of those six symptoms, has to be ongoing for at least six months, and it has to affect most of our days. Mm -hmm. So it is really a pervasive worry. Um, so let's talk about, Amy, let's kind of talk about the impact of the pandemic on even those people who weren't normally anxious, because I find that a lot, even people who would never have defined themselves as having anxious thoughts or wrestling with anxiety. And, you know, a lot of times men have a hard time defining this. A lot of times mm -hmm. people think, well, if I'm strong and I'm grounded, I can't admit that I'm feeling anxious, but really it impacts so many of us. So let's talk about the impact of COVID and why it has really, really thrown us all into this kind of, um, these difficult emotions, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, before I jump to that point too, you talked about men. Um, I also want to point out that there's something called high functioning anxiety, right? So sometimes people believe that because they're still showing up to work or they're still excelling that they can't be anxious or they may not be suffering from anxiety. And that's not true, right? So uh, yeah, let's talk about the impact of COVID on anxiety. So with the pandemic, obviously a lot of things changed. And one thing that can trigger anxiety is when people feel like they have lost control. So obviously with the pandemic, so many things were happening that made us feel like we didn't have control, whether that be our health and safety, our financial situation, the health and safety of our friends and family. And, um, you know, if let's say you had children and they couldn't go to school anymore, then you had to find someone to watch over your child. So there was just a lot of things happening uh, that made us feel like we weren't in control of our situation in our lives. And another big trigger for anxiety is when there is a disruption in our routine. So as humans, we love routine. We love what's familiar and we have a lot of habits. But with the pandemic and the closures that happened, let's say, to the gym or your work or school that induced a lot of change, which may have been really anxiety provoking for people as well. Yeah. And you know what I love, Amy, is I have to self-proclaim here. I'm going to do a true confession. Okay. So whoever's listening, promise you won't tell anybody, <laughs> but I would consider myself a high functioning, anxious person. Those who know me are giggling right now. They're like, are you sure you're high functioning? But you know what? I'm pretty high functioning, but I would consider myself somewhat more anxious during, especially during COVID than ever before. Working from home has provoked a lot of anxiety. My husband and I are both working 
from home this morning. We had mm -hmm. internet problems. The computer wouldn't turn on. I couldn't get logged into my own podcast. The dog right. won't stop barking. The washer's going to get delivered. So things could disrupt at any moment now, just to warn you all. So again, before I, you know, go further with these points, I just want to reintroduce, I'm talking to Amy Tran and she is a PhD candidate in clinical psychology. Amy's coming to you from Canada. I am coming to you from Charlotte. And I love that we can have this conversation, be in two different places and, and, you know, two different parts of the world and be experiencing the same things with our clients within ourselves. So we are talking about how come the world is reopening, um, but we're still feeling anxious or maybe we're feeling more anxious as it reopens. And so the other thing that I want to talk about is, Amy, you talked about that a lot of times what's really pervasively making people feel anxious during this time is that we feel like we don't have any control. And that is, you know, decisions being made for us. And, and there was the whole, um, we get out of a routine. And I just did a podcast recently on building habit because habits really give us a sense of security. They build a solid foundation. They let us know what to expect. And I did the whole podcast on habit because I wanted to talk about how if we instill habit into our lives, we feel like we have this perception of control. And you worded it perfectly that really what drives anxiety is feeling like we don't have control. So we have to build these areas in our life because we have more control than we think. So we have to build habits. We have to build schedules so that we do have this perception of control. But mm -hmm. I think another one, Amy, you and I made a whole list and we can just kind of go through that. I think another thing that's inviting the anxiety is ambiguity about our future. We're still not certain. And with the new mm -hmm. variant coming up, we're all like, well, what does this mean? Am I going to have to work from home for the next five years? That might be what right. my brain is thinking. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. No, exactly. When are things going to open up again? When am I going to go to the gym? I'm stressed out. There is so much what if thinking with anxiety. That's a hallmark of anxiety is catastrophizing about the future or tolerating ambiguity is something that a lot of people who are anxious struggle with. So what was more ambiguous than this pandemic and what's going to happen in the future? Nobody knows. I feel like things changed every couple months. I don't know what it was like where you're from, but in here in Toronto, I think that things opened up and then closed like two weeks later. Right. So that can be very, very, very anxiety provoking for people. Yeah, absolutely. Ambiguity about the future, ambiguity, you know, not feeling like we have control over our decisions. And really, I always tell my clients that we all have this kind of false perception of control. We feel like we're in control, but really we know that when life happens, life happens. But again, I think it's about creating pieces where we can find control. Cause like you said, we, what if ourselves all over the place, what if this happens? What if that happens? And when Amy and I start to deep dive into some coping skills, we're going to talk about how to transition out of the what if world into more of a presence centered world, right, Amy? So mm -hmm. we can kind of address that a little bit later, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, one of the other things, Amy, that you mentioned was, you know, and that we talked about was this decreased social interaction. And now we are re-inviting social interaction. And so I think that social anxiety is another big part of what we're dealing with. And I think a lot of fit pros are like social anxiety. Are you kidding? We're social people. But what about your clients? So let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about social anxiety, because I think that's a big one right now. 
Yes. Yeah. Social anxiety is a huge one. So let's define social anxiety and what it is for people who may not be that familiar with it. So it's anxiety around a fear of being judged, uh, embarrassing yourself, being critiqued. And with the pandemic, there's a couple of things that happened, right? So there was a loss of social interaction since many of us couldn't interact with people in person. So for those of you who may have already been anxious about social situations, this may have been a temporary safe haven for you, right? But as we're seeing now with things reopening, that is not sustainable, you know, staying home all the time, not going out. So with the reintroduction of social interactions, people may feel like their social skills are a bit rusty and that can be very anxiety provoking with them. Even with people who were not socially anxious before, they may also feel a little bit anxious going back out into the world, right? So that's the social part. Now, there's also this Thing where we can't interpret social cues very well with everyone wearing a mask. So that may be anxiety provoking as well. And a third layer of that is there are people who have different comfort levels with shaking hands, hugging, vaccine status. So having all of those things um, like that you have to think about can be really anxiety provoking when people are trying to navigate. So in essence, there isn't a template we can use, a social script where we can use anymore to interact with people, right? Because there's so many variables that we need to consider. Um, yeah. I think you're spot on. And I kind of want to go a little bit deeper into mm -hmm. each of those because I love the way that you laid out the framework there. But the first thing that you mentioned with social anxiety was we feel like we've gotten a little stale. And, and I'm an extremely social person. My bucket gets filled when I socialize, whereas some people feel um, like it takes away, you know, those who are more introverted. But even for me, I have to laugh because now social situations, I'm like, hmm, <clears throat> I guess I need to brush up on my social skills. I am not as used to it. And I'm finding that when mm -hmm. I'm in social situations now, I can almost more than ever before relate to an introvert because I'm like, oh, wow, this takes a lot of work and I'm not used to feeling that way. I'm used to my bucket being full when I'm in a social situation. So I can very much, you know, for the the whole thing during the pandemic was those who were introverts were like, yes, I'm used to this. Those who were extrovert, extroverts were like, uh, no, I, I'm not used to this at all. Well, we mm -hmm. all are kind of having to figure out what that means as we reintegrate. And the second thing that you talked about was when we misinterpret one another when we are online and because so much of our stuff, our interaction with one another is being done via email, text more than ever before, um, phone calls on a good day, it's being done via Zoom where we can see facial expressions. But we both know there's a lot that goes wrong, a lot that gets lost in interpretation, or shall we say misinterpretation, when we can't see another person's face or we're not there to see their whole body language. And you can yeah. see where that really um, drives a lot of anxiety for people, right? Because they don't have all those social cues. They can't watch people and, and gauge 
they can't see themselves through the lens of other people anymore. Exactly. Exactly. We were thrown into this environment where we were essentially forced to use technology to communicate with each other. And if you didn't have anxiety before, it may have gotten heightened through that experience because there is a lot of ambiguity online. People have all different types of styles of communicating, right? So, oh my God, they used a period or they're taking so long to respond or they seem like they're not really happy because they weren't smiling at me nonstop on Zoom. All types of ifs and all these types of stories that we can tell ourselves can increase the anxiety. And then we're now coming back into the world where we're, you know, trying to brush up on our skills and people are wearing masks. So it is a really tough time for people for sure. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is I recently gave a big presentation and everyone in the room had the option of leaving their camera off. And I would say about 70% chose to leave their camera off. Well, nothing Mm -hmm. gets in the human psyche, like a lot of black boxes where you can't see someone's face. And so I'm giving a presentation to a lot of black boxes. Well, the mind plays a lot of games when you see that, oh, they're not enjoying it or, oh, are they, you know, um, checking their Facebook or are they painting their toenails? Um, Are they even here? Or are they just like put their name in the box and pretended to show up? And so we do, we have a a lot of anxiety about this. And if you've ever given a presentation during this time or had to speak in a group, you know, even if it's a work meeting and there's 20 people on the work meeting and 15 of them have their camera turned off and you want to speak up, I think people are less inclined to speak up unless they can see faces. Because again, they want to gauge themselves against what other people in the room are indicating based on the words that are coming out of our mouth, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I also wanted to add another thing too, is that, you know, uh, a lot of my work is with young adults and teens and, you know, trying to navigate these social interactions can be tough at that age. And I think when you can interact with people in person, a lot of things can happen organically. Like you bump into someone and they ask you if you want to join them while they're going to the restaurant or the mall or whatever. Now with all of that gone, it's only the social media and the internet and text messaging that's available. So there's less of an opportunity for these organic interactions to take place. So now social interactions and hierarchies are developing. So I think with younger people who are going back to school or going back to these in-person meetups, it may be really anxiety provoking because they don't know how certain relationships within their friend groups have changed or developed over time because they can't see that anymore. It's all online and they all, they have to make a lot of inferences about what they see online or through um, you know their group messages and those types of technologies. I am so glad you brought that up. I think that is such a powerful point because I do think that that even happens with adults. Think about how many organic get togethers happen in a work environment where mm-hmm. you're walking down the hall, you see a couple of coworkers going to the lunch. Oh, Angie, do you want to join us for lunch? 
Whereas as opposed to, um, you know, you see online that so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so went to lunch and automatically you feel slighted or like you weren't thought about, but you're right. So much of the interactions that have been taking place have happened organically or used to happen organically. And now there's just not as much room for that. And so Mm -hmm. I think as young people, people of all generations, it's like we have to put ourselves out there even more for people to stay in people's um, mind space, to be included and involved in things. And for some people, that's a really uncomfortable thing. It feels very Mm -hmm. intrusive. People feel like, oh, I'm inviting myself. Not really. You're just helping people remember that you're here. Maybe you're not active on social media, but maybe you still would like to be a part of of things that are happening, even if it's a Zoom party on Friday night or a happy hour, right? Exactly. Yes. Things have gotten much more explicit in the online world. You have to put yourself out there and you have to invite people or ask to be invited. And that can be a really hard thing, um, especially with anxiety in the picture. Yeah. So I'm talking to Amy Tran. She is a um, candidate, a a PhD candidate in clinical psychology. She's coming to you from Canada. And we are talking about the aftermath of the pandemic. How come we're re-entering the world, but yet so many of us are having a lot of anxious thoughts or a lot of mixed emotions about everything that's going on around us. Everything from what does it mean to be social again, to do I really want to go back to work, to how do I pick up on social cues, to all this other stuff. So Amy and I were kind of deep diving just now into social anxiety and some of the things that are coming up with social anxiety. And the last point, Amy, that you had mentioned was um, people, the, it's the little nuances, like, do I shake hands? Do I hug? Um, what are the, what's the uh, political protocol right now as we re-enter into the world? And it's those little, seemingly little things that are creating a lot more anxiety for a lot of us. You know, how do we show warmth and and inclusivity when we're really not supposed to get any closer than six feet to someone? <laughs> mm-hmm, right? Totally. Mm-hmm. And the fear of offending someone or scaring someone. So with social anxiety, that can be a really intrusive thought. Am I saying something stupid? Am I offending anyone? So now we have this added layer of, am I standing too close to someone? right? Or do I shake my hand? What if I don't? Do they think I'm being rude? But if I do, do they think that I don't care about the pandemic? So there's just so much that people need to think about now, which can be really, really hard on our mental health. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the more thoughts that are spinning around up here, the more it actually exacerbates anxiety because it's a lot of clutter going on. And how do we clear away the clutter? So actually, Amy, I'm going to move into that. I'm going to move into speaking of clutter. How do we clear away the clutter? How do we manage these anxious thoughts? And again, I want to put it out there that even though I work in the clinical world and Amy works in the clinical world, we're not diagnosing anxiety. We're defining anxiety. We're talking about what it means socially, what it means for our society. And then we're going to talk about some coping skills because whether you've been clinically diagnosed with anxiety or you just experience some anxious feelings, we just want to offer some tools of the trade to kind of help get people in a more comfortable space. Um, What do you think, Amy? You ready to move on to some kind of some coping strategies? Yes, I'm totally ready. And I'm glad that you mentioned that these coping strategies are available to everyone. 
Yeah, absolutely. Even those who just feel like they're a little bit stressed out. I mean, we can all manage these coping strategies. I use these coping strategies every day in my life, whether I'm experiencing anxious thoughts or not. So one of the things that Amy and I talked about is, you know, you have to relax the body before you can relax the mind. And so we were kind of brainstorming some different ways of how you relax the body. And one of the things is we've talked about breathing. There's all kinds of different breathing techniques, progressive muscle relaxation, where it's a tense and a release. And there's, there's great YouTube videos on progressive muscle relaxation. And I think it especially applies to fit pros because fit pros are like, I can't meditate. I can't breathe. <laughs> um, but they can do progressive muscle relaxation because it very much emulates what we do when we're strength training. There's a tension and then a release. Right. Right. Um, but it's, it's the other thing that before I uh, turn this over for Amy to give us the next tip is, there is the five, four, three, two, one strategy, which is, um, you know, clearly observing your environment. I think this is another way to relax the body. So, um, a lot of times if I'm between clients or I'm having a hard time sleeping, I might get up out of bed and I do the five, four, three, two, one. And that is basically, I, let's say I walk outside or I walk into a new room. And the first thing I do is I look for the first five things that I see. So, you know, I see my screen right now. I see my light ring that I'm using. I see my, my webcam and so on. And then four things that you can hear. Um, and so the five things, five, first five things I lay my eyes on, the first four things that I hear, three things that I can feel. I can feel my desk. I can feel my computer. I can feel um, the warmth in the air. And then two things that I can smell. So what can I smell? I wish I could smell chocolate. And then one thing I can taste. So it's the five, four, three, two, one. It's just a great way to reset the nervous system. And it's a great way to relax the body so that the mind can clear itself. So Amy, I'm gonna turn it over to you to kind of move on to another coping skill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love those. Thank you for the awesome summary. So we're gonna talk about now our thinking. So our thinking oftentimes can drive a lot of anxiety. But what is really important to remember is that our thoughts are not always facts. So one of the evidence-based therapy modalities for addressing anxiety, which I'm going to talk about now, is cognitive behavior therapy, which stands for CBT. So I want everyone to picture a triangle. And on each point of the triangle, there's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So all of these three things influence one another, right? So if you are invited to a party, for example, and you feel really, uh, or you think no one's going to talk to me, I'm going to have such a horrible time, then you're going to feel sad or anxious. And then that's going to influence how you behave at the party. You may feel, or you may act um, very closed off and withdraw. So if I asked you right now to think of a purple elephant, could you do it? Probably I could. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if I asked you to clap twice, could you do that? Yes, I can. Now, if I asked you to stop worrying about the pandemic and stop being anxious, could you do that? 
No, and that is not helpful. You're fired. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's a lot harder to change how we feel, but it's a lot easier to change what we do, how we act, and how we think. So one of the important things in CBT is to monitor and change our automatic thoughts. So we have thousands and thousands of thoughts every day. And you may not know that because they're automatic, right? So when you notice the shift in mood, when you're suddenly feeling anxious, I want you to think, what was I just thinking? And tune into yourself, tune into yourself, ask yourself what you were thinking. And those are your automatic thoughts that are usually feel feeling the anxiety. So you may be thinking, what if um, this, or why were they laughing at me? They don't like me. And Part of CBT teaches you to monitor your thinking, but then ask yourself, okay, am I falling into a thinking trap? And I'll give you an example of some thinking traps. So one is mind reading. We tend to read people's minds. They think I'm dumb. They think I'm a failure. They don't like me. Well, we don't know if these things are true. We're just reading people's minds, right? Another one is future telling. I'm going to have such a bad time. They're going to hate my presentation. I'm going to, I can't even think of one, but you get the point, right? So there's future telling. There's catastrophizing where you think of the worst case scenario. And then there's black and white thinking as well, where you think on two extremes. So it's either this or that. So if I don't get 100%, then I'm a failure. But no, that's not really true. There's a lot of gray area in between as well, right? So there are tons and tons of thinking traps. Now, I don't have time to go through all of them, but there's tons of amazing resources online. If you just um, look up thinking traps CBT, then you'll see all of these different thinking traps that people can fall into that can really exacerbate and heighten your anxiety. Yeah, I think you described cognitive behavioral therapy perfectly. And you're right, it's, you know, the thoughts, the feelings, the behavior, it's easy to say, I cannot clap two times. But it's not so easy to say, I'm not going to worry about the pandemic. And so I think that a lot of us get caught in these thinking traps. And another thing you can look up is even Daniel Amen calls them ants, automatic negative thoughts. And he gives you nice, easy, um, compatible, easy to follow tools to step outside of those automatic thoughts, right? So um, it's about, you know, not saying that my thoughts are bad, but actually challenging my thoughts and saying, just because I have a thought doesn't mean I have to buy in or believe it. It's like going fishing. I don't have to fish for every thought and every thought that I think I don't have to bite the hook and be like, oh, that must Mm -hmm. be true because I'm thinking it because that's absolutely polar opposite. Our thoughts are not facts and our feelings are not facts and our thoughts are not all accurate. So just because we think it doesn't mean it's true. And so it's not like our, our we're trying to lie to ourselves, but these automatic thoughts just kind of build on themselves. And a lot of times what builds is the repetition of them. Because usually mm-hmm. if I have an automatic thought, That's a thought that I think a lot. And so my mind starts to believe it because it's constantly repeating the same message, like a song that I can't quit playing on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so 
I want to talk for a minute about challenging those thoughts, Amy, and then I'm going to have you kind of expound on it as well. But challenging the thoughts, again, isn't saying that the thoughts are bad. It's just, or that they're inaccurate or that they're wrong. It's just saying, what if I looked at it a different way? So Amy had mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that we what if a lot. You know, what if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if I get COVID? What if, um, you know, my marriage breaks up because we're together 24 seven? Um, what if my kids have to come back from school because of this variant that's kicking in? And we what if ourselves and we create all these scenarios and all these automatic negative thoughts and it becomes this very vicious cycle and we ruminate, which means we go over it and over it and over it again until we really start to believe it. And it's like we're swimming in, in the muck, right? So one thing to do to disrupt that cycle is to first pay attention. Like Amy said, what is the thought that keeps going through your head? In order to disrupt the cycle, we have to know what are those automatic thoughts that are interfering. And then we have to ask ourselves, is there anything I can do about this? Where do I have positive control? So if it's, what if I lose my job? Well, to some people, it feels like I have no control over that. But that's where I say to a client, well, let's think about this. Let's think about where do you have positive control? What are some things that you could do or, or think about? Or what are some action steps you could take? So some of my clients have said, well, I can update my resume. Perfect. It's a great time to do that. It makes you feel like you have positive control. You're taking an action step to mitigate the effects of if I lost my job, boom, I'm ready to go. I have a resume ready to go. Um, because focusing on what if I lose my job is unproductive. Focusing on updating my resume, now that's productive. Um, so an action step. So what do you think? Amy, I'm going to kind of turn this over to you and have you expound on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you touched on positive control because that's something that I encourage the clients that I work with when we're dealing with anxiety to do is focus on what you can control. And what I say is if you have a what if thought, instead of thinking, oh my God, if I lose my job, I'm going to not be able to pay my rent or my mortgage and whoa, 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 let's take a step back and let's actually play the scenario out to the end. So take a step back, take some deep breaths, right? We want to calm the body, then we can calm the mind and grab a piece of paper and write, okay, so let's say, what if I, what if I lose my job? What can I do to cope? And then play the scenario out in the, to the end and pull on your coping strategies as well as think about the things that you can control and then look at everything that you have written down and ask yourself, how does this make me feel? Do I feel like I can get through this? If the worst case scenario actually unfolded, could I actually cope with this, right? Who can I lean on for support? So it's just playing the scenario out in the end can help you realize that you are resilient. You can cope. You do have supports to lean on rather than getting stuck in this spiral of, everything's going to collapse and I'm not going to be able to get through this. Yeah. I love that. I absolutely love that. Playing this scenario to the end, actually. Okay. Let's go with it. Let's pretend this does happen. And another thing that I work with my clients on is, um, you know, doing that, but then also I ask them, can you think of a time in your life where something happened that was worst case scenario? Like your worst fear came to fruition. 
oh yeah, everybody can think of a catastrophe in their life, something horrible that they've been through. And then I asked them, what were the tools that got you through that? And then we play that back. And I, I want to know what, what were the tools that got you through that situation? Um, what are your strengths? What were the obstacles that got in your way? And how did you overcome those obstacles? Because remember, mm -hmm. you know, we always talk about heroes of the world, but we are all our own personal hero. And so we've all been through these catastrophic times in our lives and we found a way to get through that. And so whatever we called upon then, that is still within us. In fact, it's even stronger now because we're on the other side of that trauma. And so now I can use those skills to deal with what if I lose my job? Love that. Yes. Thinking about the challenges that you had in the past, asking yourself how to cope. Another helpful question too is to ask yourself, what are the chances this might actually happen? Because sometimes we exaggerate the probability of something scary actually happening. And while I'm talking about these questions, I also want to present some other questions that people can ask themselves to challenge their thinking. So some popular questions that are used in therapy include what I already mentioned. So what are the chances this might actually happen? Another one is, what evidence do I have to support this thought? What evidence am I missing to support this thought? What would I say to a friend or a loved one going through the same situation? And then, like we already talked about, if this actually happened, how would I cope? So these are all some questions that you can ask yourself to challenge your thoughts. And when you're first starting out, it may be hard to do this in your head. So grab a piece of paper or keep a notes in your phone, or there's even some apps, CBT apps that you can use as well that can help you. And remember, it's a skill, right? And how do you get good at something is practice. So the more you practice this challenging your thought exercise, the easier it's going to be. And then the easier it is, it easier it is to have more helpful automatic thoughts. I love that. I think that's fantastic. And so I hope that everyone kind of reviews those questions. Um, I jotted them down because even though I know the questions, I can never, you know, there's a lot of different questions, but just a couple is, you know, um, what evidence do I have to support that this is actually true? What evidence do I have to support that it's not true? Um, what would I say to a loved one who's going through this? And um, if it happened, how would I cope? And so those are really, really powerful questions. I hope you kind of replay this. And, and go through those questions. And so in the spirit of time, Amy, I want to just, and again, I'm talking to Amy Tran. She is a doctoral candidate in clinical psychology. And we're talking about, this is the aftermath of the pandemic. We're re-entering the world. How come we're anxious? And so I want to talk about just a few ending coping skills that Amy and I had talked about. And one of them is, um, you know, scheduling worry time. Amy, you had mentioned that one. And so, you know what, I'm going to schedule, I'm going to allow myself 10 minutes to worry. And then I'm going to set a timer. And when that 10 minutes is up, then I'm going to move on. And you know what, guess what? Worst case scenario didn't happen during those 10 minutes. And I'm going to let you circle back to that if you want. 
Another one is journaling. Of course, there's exercise. And I think my biggest one is keep the conversation going. You know, when we use thought suppression, when we try to keep it inside, it's like a boiling pot and our thoughts gain more power because they really want a place to go. We all need support. We are inherently wired to need the support of other people. So we don't want to suppress those thoughts. We want to keep the conversation going in a safe space with safe people, because I am telling you to everyone who is listening, if you're feeling it, chances are most of the people in your circle are feeling it too. So Amy, I'm going to let you kind of roll with that for a minute before we close up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you did a wonderful job explaining them, Angie. Uh, The one I will add, though, is exposure. So with anxiety or fear in general, right, we tend to cope by avoiding the thing that we're scared of, and that makes us feel safe. But the thing is, we need to expose ourselves to the very thing that is creating that fear in order for your body to desensitize to it. So I'm not by any means saying, you know, if you're afraid of a group of people to go to a big gathering with 50 people, I'm not saying that at all, but start small, pick something small, like even interacting with the barista or saying hi to someone uh, at the bus stop, anything. So start small and then evaluate how that went. If you're having any of those automatic negative thoughts, challenge those thoughts, replace those thoughts. And then that is going to be how you retrain your body to overcome that fear. So start small and then pick the next thing, then pick the next thing. And then eventually try to expose yourself to the thing that you're scared of the most. And this is a therapy strategy, a modality that's used in therapy. There's a lot of research to back up exposure. Um, But of course, make sure you have the appropriate coping skills that work for you and a supportive person you can reach out to um, if you get a bit too anxious. But I do want to add that exposure and challenging yourself to face the thing that you're scared of is an important piece of combating anxiety and challenging anxiety. Thank you. That was phenomenal. I'm glad that you explained that. And, you know, I will say to all you trainers out there, here's another way that I think exposure therapy comes into play. I talk to a lot of brand new trainers and brand new trainers, they get their certification, they have the book smarts, but they're too scared to get started in working with clients. And what I always say to them is start with your friends start small, start with one or two clients. And so, you know, at the end of the day, exposure therapy can also work with, um, with that. It can work with taking on a little, you know, one client at a time until you start to believe in your skills and get comfortable with your skills. So, you know what? I so appreciate all of you joining us. I want to just say a, a, little thank you to Amy. Amy is on Instagram and she is at doodled wellness and I'm on Instagram. I'm at Angie Miller fitness and you can reach out to Amy with questions. You can reach out to me with questions, but Amy, I really want to authentically thank you. I think you did a phenomenal job. I'd love to have this dialogue with you about anxiety and really just take away the stigma of it for all of us. And to say that, you know, again, if we're feeling it, chances are people in our circle are feeling it. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just that here's some great ways to cope. So 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy, for being on. Thanks to all of you who are listening. Keep the conversation going. Let me know if you have a topic you want me to cover. Again, Amy is at Doodled Wellness. I'm at Angie Miller Fitness. We so appreciate your time and for joining us here. We appreciate all of our NASM and APA family. So have a great day and we'll see you next week.